0: Now, today, friends, we come to the second division of this personal section of the epistle to the Galatians. We saw last time the experience of Paul in Arabia. And there we saw the origin of the gospel. The Lord Jesus communicated it to him directly. Now, the question arose, was it the same gospel that the other apostles had received also? from the Lord Jesus. They had received it from his lips. Now, in the first part of chapter 2 here, the first 10 verses, we see the oneness of the gospel and Paul's experience with the apostles in Jerusalem. And we'll see something here that I think is very interesting, and that is the communication of the gospel now And we see that the church in Jerusalem approved Paul's gospel. And that, I think, is very important to see. And notice the first five verses that we have in this chapter here. He says, "...then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus with me also." And I think that's rather a master stroke here of Paul taking up with him this man Titus, young preacher, because he was a Gentile. And the question's going to be at that great council, first council of the church in Jerusalem, and it concerned whether men are saved by the grace of God or whether they should come in under the law And Paul had him there as exhibit number one. He was not circumcised. Will he be forced to become circumcised? That's going to become, by the way, a very important question. And one that I would say is going to have to be answered one way or another. And so we find here that this is a very important matter. In fact, it's all important here. Now, I want us to look at this because... What we have here is this experience of Paul with the apostles. He says that they have come up to Jerusalem to decide whether man must come in under the Mosaic law. Because, you see, the Judaizers were out, and they were saying the church in Jerusalem believes you should be under the law. Well, all of those men there for the Jerusalem church was an all-Jewish church. They had certainly been under it. Many of them still went to the temple to worship. And in fact, that must have been their meeting place. And there was nothing wrong with that. And I believe that this reference here now in verse 1 is the reference to the Council of Jerusalem, as recorded in the 15th chapter of Acts. When Paul and Barnabas came up there in order to get this church's word about the gospel, Now, notice what happened. He says, I went up by revelation. Now, Paul wasn't about to go up there again and receive cold treatment. That is probably no reception at all, unless he felt he was in the will of God. So he said, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now, Paul recognized that if he was preaching a different gospel than the other apostles were preaching, then there was something wrong, radically wrong. And Paul was very willing to admit, he said, if I was preaching a different gospel, then I'm the one that's wrong. I'd run in vain. I'd certainly been disillusioned. I'd been misinformed. And so he goes up and he communicates that gospel. And while he was there, he says, "...but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that, because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in prevalent to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now, there was some that had come into the church out where Paul was preaching, and they came in there under false colors. They actually were not believers, apparently. They just came in to spy out the liberty they had in Christ. And they found out, here's this young Greek Titus, and Paul never compelled him to be circumcised. So what are they going to decide about him? And Paul says, well, they didn't compel him to be circumcised. And they didn't listen to the false brethren. Because if they had, we'd have been put right back under bondage. Bondage to the law and not freedom by the Spirit of God and freedom in Christ. Now, Paul says, to whom we gave place by subjection, why no, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul stood by his guns, and he said, No, sir, these false brethren said, Why, this man Titus that's here meeting with the church, and it was practically all Jewish then, why, he's not even circumcised. And Paul says he's not going to be. And he's as much a believer as any of you are believers here. He is a real believer in Christ, and he's been saved. Actually, by faith, apart from the law. He's not about to follow any part of the law for salvation. Paul says we didn't give way to that at all. Now, this is a tremendous stand, you see, that he's taking. Now, notice what happens here. But of these who seem to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person, for they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now, Paul says, we sat down with the apostles, at least he did, and I suppose Barnabas and Titus. They all sat down, and they communicated the gospel. They said, now, brother Paul, We've been hearing these reports. Tell us what you're preaching. Paul told them. And they found out, at least Paul found out, that these brethren didn't have anything to add to him at all. He was preaching the grace of God. These brethren were preaching the grace of God. And this was the gospel that had been given to the apostles at the very beginning. I say to you that this was a very wonderful thing that has taken place yonder in Jerusalem. They find out that they're in full agreement. They're all preaching the same gospel. And this is a tremendous, very wonderful thing. Now, let me move on. Verse 7. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was committed unto unto Peter. Now, what we have here is actually not two Gospels in the sense that there was Peter's Gospel and Paul's Gospel. These men were in real agreement, by the way. There's no disagreement at all. The Gospel of the circumcision means that it was the group he was speaking to. And the Gentiles here was the group that Paul was speaking to. Paul was called to go to the Gentiles. Peter was called to go to his own brethren. And the gospel of the circumcision was to Peter, and the uncircumcision was committed unto me, Paul says. Now he says, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And the proof of the pudding, of course, is always in the eating. And what were results were they getting? Well, when Peter preached the gospel, there were quite a few people saved. When Paul preached the gospel, quite a few people were saved. They were both preaching the same gospel. Now, I believe that today the real test of any work is not promotion. The real test of any work is What results does it get? I think that God's people today ought to be very careful where you give even. And I'll tell you why. If it's not getting results, why in the world give to it? And that's the reason we've said here before. You ought to give to the place where you receive your blessing. Is a church blessing you? You ought to support that church. Is a radio program blessing you? Then you ought to support that program. And there are a great many Christians today that are supporting the wrong things. They're getting no blessing from it, and the fact of the matter is, there's no result. The reason I share letters with you, I think I should. I'm obligated to. My only problem is, I wish I could share with you hundreds of others. My secretary brought in during the Christmas holidays a sheaf of letters, friends. I'd never be able, and I've been going through them, sharing some of them with you. But I just can't even touch it. We believe that we're getting results today. And if we weren't, I'd get off the air, because that's the only purpose, to give out the Word of God today. And if the Word of God's given out, it will get results. And Paul says here, the proof of Peter's ministry was he was reaching the circumcision. The proof of My ministry, Paul says, is I'm reaching the Gentiles. That is the thing that was all important here to this man, you see. Now, he goes on and says here in verse 9, "...and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the Gentiles... And they unto the circumcision. Now they would go to a different group, and Paul and Barnabas were committed to go to the Gentiles. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. And Paul came back later with an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem, because that church had been persecuted and it was in a sad condition. And Paul had helped do it, by the way, before he was converted. And that's the reason he wanted to bring back in his own hands the gift to this church. Why? Because of the fact that he had persecuted the church. And he wanted now to help them. And he was for doing that. Now, this is social service. If there's one thing that I suppose that we that are fundamental are guilty of is the lack of real service in this particular area. James is very practical in this. He says, when a man comes among you and he's hungry, don't give him the gospel. Feed him first, then give him the gospel. I'm of the opinion that fundamental churches ought to be doing more to help folk. I have tried in Los Angeles now for several years to establish a work in South Los Angeles. We've had some success. We have a Bible training school down there that's doing a wonderful job and with some of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life, wonderful Christians. And I just thank God for them. And I wish that more could be done. But you know it's difficult to get people today that are real believers in the Bible to get interested in doing that. Now, Paul says that there is this side to it. And the church there and the apostles said that Paul and Barnabas... I don't forget to remember the poor. <laughs> That's not the gospel. But if you've been saved by the grace of God, you're going to remember them. And Paul says, I was forward. I wanted to do this. Now, we come to the third experience of Paul. And this, again, friends, brings us to a very wonderful section. I love this section we're coming to. And this is the experience of Paul in Antioch, with Simon Peter. The first experience was the experience of Paul in Arabia with the Lord Jesus Christ. The second was the experience of Paul with the apostles in Jerusalem. And now we have the experience of Paul in Antioch with Peter. Now, the church in Antioch, friends, was largely a Gentile church. It actually was a mixture. And we will not understand what really happened there unless we understand how the early church operated. Now, they had a love feast that they had in connection with the Lord's Supper. Paul has a great deal to say about it in 1 Corinthians, by the way. And the early believers came together for a meal. Then they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Now, when Gentiles were saved, it raised a problem. There was the Jews who had never eaten anything sacrificed to idols. Now, the Gentiles had been idolaters, and they were accustomed to get meat that was offered to idols, or they ate pork. It made no difference to them. They'd been brought up that way. Now, how are you going to keep from offending these people? Well, they established in Antioch two tables. One was the kosher table, the other was the Gentile table. Now, Paul ate at the Gentile table. He was a Jew, but he ate at the Gentile table because Paul had said whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat, well, it makes no difference. Meat won't commend you to God. And so the thing is that Simon Peter came up to visit Paul up in Antioch. And I want to tell you, friends, it was a new experience for him because this man, although converted, he had never eaten anything unclean. You remember, that's what he told the Lord down there on the roof, down in Joppa. Before he went to the home of Cornelius, he said, why, Lord, you want me to rise, slay, and eat? I just never eaten anything unclean. And remember, he'd been a believer for some time, but he still followed that pattern. Now he came up to Antioch, and that was the Gentile table, and that was the kosher table. And so Peter came in and visited. Listen now to the way Paul describes it, verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself." Fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now, what happened was this. Peter came up to visit Paul, and so when they came in to eat, Simon Peter naturally went over and ate at the kosher table, and Paul went over to eat at that, and he noticed that night that they had a pork roast over at the Gentile table. After the meal, why, Peter joined Paul after the meal when they went outside for a little walk. And he said, Paul, I noticed you eat at the Gentile table. He said, yes. He says, I noticed that you ate pork tonight. Oh, Paul says, yes. And Peter says, well, by the way, is it good? I never tasted it. Oh, Paul says, it's delicious. And Peter says, do you think it'd be all right if I ate over there? Well, the thing that Paul says, well, it's my understanding we're going to have some nice pork chops in the morning for breakfast. Oh, he said, I think I'd like to come. And he came, and so he sat down gingerly, asked rather reluctantly, and took a pork chop, tasted it, reached over and said to Paul, says, it is delicious, isn't it? Paul said, yes. there's after all, under grace, you can either eat it or not eat it, doesn't make any difference. Meat won't commend you to God. And so Simon Peter said, I'll be here tonight. I understand that you're going to have some ham tonight, And I want to try that. And so that night, he starts rushing in. But he looks over and he sees some of the elders from the church down in Jerusalem. They've come up to visit also. And Simon Peter played musical chairs. He went all the way around that Gentile table and went over and sat down at the kosher table like a little whip puppy. And Paul saw that. What did Paul do? Well, here's what happened. Verse 13, "...and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compelest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews?" You see that it was all right for Peter to go to either table. He could sit down and eat kosher or the other. But when he'd been eating at the Gentile table, and for fear of these brethren, he comes in and goes back. What he's saying is this. He's saying in substance and by act. He's saying that Gentile table is wrong. Friends, if it wasn't wrong in his thinking, he would have eaten that. But he didn't. And he's saying the Gentiles ought to all come over and eat at this other table. And that's wrong. Paul said, in Christ, we have liberty. You can either eat meat or not eat meat. And that's the important thing. You know, there's so many people today, Christians, I think they're sincere. They try their best to put you through their little wicked gate. Well, I guess I'm rather stubborn. I always say to these folk, if I've got to come through your little wicked gate, I'm not coming. I have a liberty in Christ. And that liberty is that He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I'm accountable to Him. And He, by the way, may I say, I think He's a real dictator. I tell you, He wants me to bow to Him, and I'm going to bow to Him because I love Him and I want to serve Him. And I'm not interested in your little wicket gate. Oh, what a tremendous thing! This is right here. Our greatest opposition to the gospel today are these people that try to push you through their little wicked gate. I have no objection to people today that feel like that they should not eat certain meats. That's all right, but for goodness sakes, give me the liberty also of eating those things that you don't want to eat, because I'm not much at eating pork myself. I think you're better off if you don't, but that's a health matter. Not a religious matter at all. Well, when these brethren came up, Simon Peter, he beat it back to the kosher table. Sat down with these brethren rather sheepishly. And Paul saw what was taking place. And Paul says here, verse 14, and I back up to read that again. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel... I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now, what he's saying is simply this, that this man, when he left the Gentile table and went back to the kosher table, he's saying that that Gentile table is wrong or he wouldn't have left it. He's saying that the kosher table is the right one, and he goes back from the liberty that we have in Christ to a legalism, actually, to Judaism again. Now, the nature of the rebuke that Paul gave shows, first of all, the inconsistency of law-keeping. You see, if it was right for Simon Peter to live as the Gentile believers live. Why should he desire the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And that's what he's saying when he went back there. Now, if Gentile living under grace, apart from the law, was good enough for Simon Peter, was it bad for the Gentiles themselves? Well, it's like that song, the old-time religion. If it was good for Paul and Peter, it's good enough for me, friend. And it is the liberty that we have in Christ. Now, if Simon Peter was free to live outside the law, was it not lawful for the Gentiles to do the same? Now, Paul begins at verse 15 to state the doctrine of justification by faith. And we have, first of all, in the remainder of this chapter, justification by faith, the doctrine of, Stated. Now, will you listen to this? Now, Paul takes his position as a Jew. That was his background. Listen to him. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, the Jew in that day looked upon the Gentile as a sinner. In fact, Gentile and sinner were rather synonymous in that day. And therefore, the rebuke that Paul gave shows the folly, actually, of law-keeping, how really foolish it is. Now, will you listen to him as he is speaking in this section here? He says, "...knowing that a man..." This is verse 16. "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we..." That is, we Jews, we Israelites, we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, I'd like to hear the legalist preach on that verse. Never heard but one on it. And I tell you, it was a travesty of interpretation to hear him take this verse. This verse will upset every legal system there is today. And any person that says that you have to add anything to faith in Christ. My friend, when the minute that you do that, you have absolutely mutilated the gospel. Now, notice what he's saying here. He says, if a Jew had to leave the law behind, that is, he had to forsake it in order to be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, then Paul's question is, why should the Gentile be brought under the law? And that was the great argument at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Should the Gentile be brought under the law? And thank God the answer then was, guided by the Spirit of God, that the Gentile was not under the law salvation at all, and actually he's not under it for living at all. He's called to a much higher plane. Now, will you notice, could the Gentile find justification under the law when the Jew had already proven that it was impossible? The Jew had had the law for almost 1,500 years, and he hadn't been able to keep it at all. And the thing was that why force the Gentiles under that which had not saved not even one Israelite. Now, as the Gentile believers were already justified by grace, Paul is saying it would be folly for them to turn from that to the law, which had been unable to justify the Jew. Now, that's what he's saying in this section. And I want now to pick this verse apart. Will you look at it now with me? And I hope you have your Bible before you. And you could just follow along in the text. Oh, how you need that through here. Now, will you listen to this? Knowing that a man... This is something you can know. You can know whether you're saved or not. Knowing that a man... What kind of man? Anthropos is the word. And it means, actually, it's the generic term for mankind. And it speaks of the solidarity of the race, the common humanity that all of us have. This breaks the barrier of color. It breaks the barrier of race. It breaks the barrier of the social strata. Knowing that any man doesn't make any difference who the man is, we are all on one ground before the cross, and that ground just happens to be sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I don't care who you are. You're a sinner in God's sight. Knowing that a man, any man, is not justified by the works, and the the here is not in the original, actually it should be works of law. Now, that includes the Mosaic system, but it includes any legal system. Now, will you hear me very carefully? If you say today, that you have to join a certain church, or that you have to have a certain experience, or that you have to be baptized to be saved, may I say to you that you're contradicting this verse here, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, any law, the Mosaic system. But Paul here embraces the whole legal system that you find in every religion. In fact, the thing that makes Christianity different from every religion on top side of the earth, friends, is this. Every religion that I know anything about, and I've attempted to read up on all the religions and cults of this world, and every one of them says, do something, do something. Every one of them. Christianity does not say that. Christianity says you're justified by faith, That is, faith in an accomplished act and fact for you. That is, every other religion says do, Christianity says done. It's done. The great transaction is done, and you're asked to believe it. Now, let me add something else here that I didn't even mention when we went through 1 Corinthians in that section on gifts. What Paul is actually saying when in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians he says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus a curse, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Now, will you listen to me very carefully here? No man can call Jesus a curse. How can you call Jesus a curse if you say to me, McGee, when you came to Christ and accepted him as your Savior, you didn't get all that was coming to you. Now the Holy Spirit can give you something that you didn't get in Christ, and you ought to seek that today. My friend, when you begin to depreciate the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross When he came to this earth to die for you and worked out a perfect salvation so that when he went back to heaven, it says he sat down at the right hand of God. You know the reason it says he sat down? Because there wasn't anything else to be done. If there was, he would have done it before he sat down. When he sat down, it meant it was an accomplished fact. Now, when you say that he didn't do it all for me, may I say you're saying Jesus is a curse. And you can't do that by the Holy Spirit of God. And you're not giving me good advice. You're not giving me the word of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, He will take the things of Christ, the Lord Jesus said, and show them unto you. In fact, He said, He will not speak of Himself. My friend, you got the whole ball of wax when you came to Christ. He's given you everything that you'll need in this life. And it's to Christ that we come. He is the one today that administers all the gifts, if you please. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives them, but only he's working down here under the supervision of the second person of the Godhead. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. My friend, today we've got everything in him. He is all in all. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Amen. And when you say Amen, you're through, my friend. Amen. He did it all. And that's all he asks you to say when you come to him. Now, this is pretty straight here. You can't misunderstand this verse. Knowing that any man, any human being, man or woman black or white, doesn't make any difference, rich or poor, bond or free, Roman, American, Chinese, knowing that any man is not justified by the works of law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Not faith plus something, faith plus nothing. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. "...that we might be justified by the faith of Christ." Now, he says, we. Who's we? We Israelites. We had to leave the law and come to Christ and trust him in order to be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of law. Listen to him. I think anybody can understand this. I think some of the liberal theologians would be able to understand this. Will you listen to it? This is the Word of God." For by the works of law shall no flesh be justified. Don't depreciate the work of the Lord Jesus and say that I didn't get everything from him. I got a perfect salvation from him. I was a hell-doomed sinner. I came to him. I trusted him. And he is the one that has saved me. Now, will you notice verse 17? But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin, God forbid. Now, this is a verse, very candidly, that I'm very frank to say is a little more difficult, I think a little more difficult to understand than verse 16. Let me give you what I believe is the sense of it here. And I should probably elaborate a little bit more on it when it says justified by faith. Justified is the Greek word dikaios, which means to declare a person right. That is, to make him right. You're declared to be right by your faith in Jesus Christ. And it means a sinner who's guilty before God and he's under condemnation and under judgment and he's declared to be right with God on the basis of his faith in the redemption that we have in Christ. And it's not just forgiveness of sins, which is subtraction, but it's the addition of the righteousness of Christ. He's declared righteous. And it's not my righteousness, because my righteousness is not acceptable and it's not as good as this. I got a perfect righteousness, and that is Christ. Now, the Jew had to forsake the law, take his place as a sinner in order to be saved by the faith in Christ. Now, I do not think that any statement could be more dogmatic and crystal clear than, "...by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified." Now, verse 17 goes on to say, and the sense of this verse seems to be that since the Jew had to forsake the law in order to be justified by Christ, and therefore take his place as a sinner. Is Christ the one who makes him a sinner? Paul says, of course not. The Jew, like the Gentile, was a sinner by nature, and he could not be justified by the law as he demonstrated. This is what we have in Acts 15, verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why put God to the test? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Who said that? Simon Peter said that, by the way. And so he and Paul were in agreement on the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, let me just keep right on moving right down in this section here. He says, verse 18... For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. In other words, what Paul actually is saying here is that if I go back under law, then I make myself a transgressor. But he says I'm free from the law. Now, how did he become free from the law? Verse 19, Paul says, for I through law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Now, what he's saying here is just simply this. He says, when Christ died, he died for me, died in my stead, because the law had condemned me. You see, the law was a ministration of condemnation, ministration of death is what Paul calls it in Second Corinthians the third chapter. And it condemns man. And even under the legal system, God would have had to destroy the nation. But he gave the sacrificial system, five sacrifices, all of them pointing to Christ. And God, by his marvelous grace, was able to save. And therefore That mercy seat was a throne of grace where a nation could find forgiveness of sins. Now, the law, therefore, condemned me. The law, therefore, has accused me and accused man. And we stand guilty before the law. And so the law actually is responsible for Jesus dying for us. The law condemned us, said we had to die. All right, now, if I'm dead to the law, then let's be very frank. If I'm dead to the law, then, my friend, (laughs) I'm no longer responsible to the law. The law's already killed me. It's executed me, and I'm dead. I'm dead to the law. Therefore, the law could not do for me what Christ has done for me. He not only took my place and died for me, but he also did something else. He was able to give me life. He came back from the dead. You see, the law arrested, condemned, sentenced, and slew us. And that's all the law could do. It could only, in the very nature of the case, condemn and slay us. And if you want to come that route, you'll get death, friend. Only Christ can give you life. And after all, life is what we need today. Now, here in the 20th verse, he goes on. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this 20th verse here states a fact which is true of every believer. Now, we are not to seek to be crucified with Christ. So many of these young people today, they talk about they want to live the crucified life. And he's not talking about that at all here. We are not to seek to be crucified with Christ. We have already been crucified with him. And now the principle of living, it's not by the law, which had slain because it found us guilty. But we're now to live by faith. Faith what? Faith in the Son of God. You see, friends, the death of Christ upon the cross, it was not only penal, that is, he not only died a penal death, that is, paying the penalty for our sins, but he died a substitutionary death as well. He was not only the sacrifice for sin, but he was the substitute for all who believe. Paul declares, therefore, here, that under the law he was tried, found guilty, and he was condemned, and in the person of his substitute he was slain. Now, when did that take place? took place 1,900 years ago. I am crucified with Christ. When? When Christ died. But nevertheless, I live. How do I live? In Christ. He's alive today at God's right hand. We're told that we've been put in Christ today. Now, you can't improve on that. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Now, that ought to get rid of this foolish notion today that we can crucify ourselves. When I was a pastor in downtown Los Angeles, I had a young man... It came to me after a service. And he said to me, Doctor McGee, are you living the crucified life? I think I rather startled the boy. I said, No, I'm not. Are you? And he hesitated for a moment and stuttered and stammered around and finally said, Well I tried to. Oh, I said, That's not the question you asked me. You asked me if I'm living the crucified life. And I answered, you. I said, no. Now, you tell me yes or no. Are you living the crucified life? Well, he said, I'm trying to. Well, I said, that's, of course, not it. You're either living it or you're not living it. But I said to him, you can't live the crucified life. Oh, he says, why can't I live it? Well, I said, that verse doesn't say that. I said, you know, there's something quite interesting about Crucifixion. You can kill yourself. You can commit suicide in many different ways. You can hang yourself. You can shoot yourself. You can take poison. You can jump off of a high building. You can jump in front of a truck. There are many different ways you can kill yourself, but you can't kill yourself by crucifying yourself. You see, when you nail one hand to the cross, who in the world's going to nail that other hand to the cross? You're not going to be able to make it that way, brother. And when you talk about I'm crucified with Christ, you have to understand what Paul is talking about. Paul says 1900 years ago, I was crucified with Christ. When he died, he died a substitutionary death. He died for you, he died for me. Now, we're also told in the 6th of Romans, we have been buried with him by baptism, by identification, we have been raised with him in newness of life. And now we're joined to the living Christ. Paul says we don't know him any more after the flesh. He's not the man of Galilee walking around the Sea of Galilee. I walked around that sea and I didn't see him. He's not there today. Why? He's at God's right hand. He's the glorified Christ today. So that Paul is saying here, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You see, the law executed us. The law could not give us life. Who gave us life? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. How do you live? Oh, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. My friend, that's the thing that's important. He died for me down here that I might live in him up yonder, and that he might live in me down here. And the life, Paul says, which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What kind of life is this? It's a life of faith. Saved by faith, live by faith, walk by faith. And that's what it means to walk in the Spirit today. And we're going to see that in this epistle too. Not only are you saved by faith, You're to live by faith. Now, he says, by the faith of the Son of God, and this is lovely. He says, the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. He loved me, but he just couldn't love me into heaven. (laughs) He had to give himself for me. And the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And you can only receive a gift by faith, any gift for that matter. You've got to believe the giver Who holds the gift out to you means business and is telling the truth when he holds it out and says it's yours. And you have to reach out in faith to take it. You don't know. He may, you know, take it back in a hurry. He may be an Indian giver. But you have to have confidence. Now, God offers you the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse is one of the reasons that I believe that Paul was present at the crucifixion of Christ. That man was a Pharisee, Pharisees with one led in the crucifixion. He was a leader in the persecution of the church. And he was also one who hated the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in Jerusalem at that time in the school of Gamaliel, a young man, and I can't believe he'd stay home the day they crucified Jesus. I think it was there, and it says of these Pharisees, they shot out the lip at it. They ridiculed him. They told him to come down from the cross, and they did all of that, and they sat down and watched him die, and you can't be any lower than that. And I think that Paul was there that day. Now, after he came to know the glorified Christ, the one that, died down here, the one who rose again at God's right hand, Paul could go back and look back, and he could say, while I was there ridiculing him, while I was there shooting out the lip at him, he loved me, and I hated him then. But he loved me, and he gave himself for me. And that's the supreme sacrifice, by the way. And Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Now, when he said that, that was not academic. That was not hyperbole. It was not an oratorical gesture. When he said that, that is an actual fact. He's the chief of sinners. Why? Because you can't go any lower than to sit down and watch him die on the cross, my friend. And you can trot underfoot the blood of the precious blood of Christ today by ignoring him and turning against him and away from him, as Paul did. And Paul could call himself the chief of sinners. And it was that crowd, the Lord Jesus said, Forgive them, they know not what they do. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, became Paul the apostle. And he said, He loved me, and he gave himself for me. And he said, When I was hating him, he was loving me. And he was giving himself for me, that I might have life. Now, Paul goes on to say, "...I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by law, then Christ is dead in vain." Now, the whole thought, I think, is just simply this, that if there had been any other way to save sinners, then God would have used that method. He would have adopted that method. If the law could have been given... Our religion could have been given to save sinners. God would have done that. This was the only way that an infinite God could save you and me. And He was willing to make the supreme sacrifice. Now, this brings us through this chapter.